0: Welcome to The Gray Report. I'm your host, Spencer Gray, and if you're a multifamily investor, whether you're active or passive, Well, this is the right YouTube show and podcast that you should be listening to because on The Great Report, every single week, we're breaking down all the latest trends, research reports, data, and original opinions all about the multifamily industry, real estate, and the economy. We've got some great articles and studies to go over uh, from Harvard Joint Center for Housing Studies, Globe Street, Apartment List, and RealPage. We're talking about not only how far may rents fall, we're talking about why. Looking at household formation, and then just what do some of the leading experts in the multifamily industry. Think that, see how rent is are going to grow or not grow over this next year in 2023. All right, so we'll strap in. We've got a great episode today. Make sure you like and subscribe so you're hooked into the entire Great Capital Network. All right, let's get into it. All right, everyone, welcome back to The Report, joined again by Matt Bosnagel, Director of Communications here at Gray Capital. Matt, it's an exciting week. We've got some cool stuff that's coming up, some Mm -hmm. good articles today that I think Provide some really good context information, Um, not only some good opinions from some smart folks, but also some good data to try to kind of understand kind of what's going on, where we've been, where we are, and maybe where we're going a little bit.
1: Yeah, the speculations are getting a little bit sharper, and there's some hard-hitting stuff here. I think that it is, none of it is too much doom and gloom, but there is some pitfalls that are hopefully easily avoided if they get the right information.
0: I think so. You get the right information, you get some good quality information, you can make some decisions. Hopefully. It's not how much, it's the quality information, and that's what we're trying to do here on The Gray Report every day. If you're not subscribed to The Gray Capital newsletter, The Gray Report, you're going to want to go over to graycapitolllc.com slash newsletter. You can get not only these articles sent to your inbox, but I mean, it's what, two dozen like articles a week? Just about, for sure. And again, this is all stuff that's covering multifamily real estate, whether it's commercial real estate, residential, but also just the macro economy. What's going on? Yep. I mean, it's the our subscriber list. It's impressive that the companies and the individuals that we see on our list that are using it. And then even other content creators and multifamily syndicators, are, I see our newsletter going out and then I see them writing articles and pieces based on Could what be. we've sent. Yeah, Could be a coincidence, but they're also subscribers.
1: I've seen some research, some research leaders in the multifamily space. Yeah, Uh, yeah. Click on a couple articles. Well,
0: and uh, we were also featured the Gray Report on Ashcroft Capital on one of their quarterly newsletters as one of the top ten sources for information for multifamily investors. That's Um, right. We don't even know how we got on the list. We didn't ask for it,
1: but (laughs) hey. Cream rises. We'll take, we'll take it. No, so we
0: appreciate <laughs> Ashcroft and the Joe Fairless and the rest of the Ashcroft team. So I've been yeah. on Joe's podcast before. He's a really nice guy, really well-known in the multifamily syndication industry. Put on some good events. The Best Ever Conference. They've got a big, great portfolio in the Southeast. But um, they do a lot of like, sponsorships. You can like sponsor their like their content. We didn't pay for a sponsorship, but we were featured. That's great. That's got to feel good.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. I like it. I'm uh, I'm, in, I'm talking to them. Yeah. Why not? Why we'll get not? some collaboration opportunities. Yeah,
0: that would be fun. Well, Matt, let's just dive right into the reports. Starting with this Globe Street article that yeah. has a little bit of a clickbaity title, but I think it's a it's not inappropriate. Yeah. How far will apartment rents fall this year? It's like as you said in the notes, in the yep. show notes, Matt, it's no longer a question of will rents grow or fall. It's now how much will they?
1: Yeah, that's kind of the world we're living in and the atmosphere that we're swimming in. Even if the headline doesn't match the content of the article and uh, spoiler alert, it doesn't. None of the people cited here are citing negative or are, are going to expect negative growth. Despite that, it doesn't feel out of place to have a headline that says how because that's what people are asking. We've had so many months of negative growth. Well, how far are they going to go? But given this atmosphere of negative expectations it is nice that a lot of these experts are predicting actually it seems like a m- much more normal year of rent growth one where it could be bad or it could be good and that's as shocking as that might seem especially after 2021 and even really 2022 where rent growth was pretty elevated yeah it may be dampened but it's not wholly horrible no and it's just one of these things where you're gonna have to work to find deals just like you'd had to do maybe in 2017.
0: Yeah, you're really gonna have to work it and also to note, I mean, the um, these are all national like averages. Yes. Which is, I mean, you could have absolute, horrible, negative rent growth. Declining rents in one market, you could have positive in, in another, and maybe it averages out to zero. And yeah. so your takeaway would be incorrect to say, we're going to have 0% rent growth next year. It ha- It's always market by market specific, but the, yep. there are these larger trends that we do see. I mean, like the slowing down yep. of traffic and the signing of new leases. Yep. It's been a kind of across the board, a national story, but how that's translated to rent growth or rent declines has been very different relative to where you are, what's going on in your market. And a lot of it has to do with kind of what the supply demand Mm -hmm. landscape looks like. If you're in a market that's got thousands of new A-class units coming online, well, yeah, if you have an existing A-class property, it's going to be tough competition. Yeah. But- if there's, like, no new construction coming online, it might be a little bit of a different story.
1: Yeah, and I think that as some of the other articles in this that we're going to read this week bear out, it matters on the market level, but really kind of, like, on the submarket level. Yeah, There's 100%. some vastly different performance, and we'll see if we're going to use Cleveland as an example yeah. as we discuss yeah. it now. But, like, depending on wh- on which Cleveland you're looking at, it could be doing incredible, or it could be doing not quite so incredible. But, Let's yeah.
0: get into some out. We've got some familiar names in this report that, they're, that Globe Street quoted. Yeah. Greg Willett is one. What is Greg Willett? He's from Institutional Property Advisors. What's his, what, what are his, So th- what's his Greg stake?
1: Willett predicts, and this is his best case scenario: three point one percent rent growth. He says that we're going to see strongest rent growth in the middle of the road class B properties, some in class C, but there's going to be challenges in class A as they compete for some of the newly built apartments yeah. that are coming up in many places. Again, apartment supply is going to be different in each and every market, and if you're invest, but if you are investing in a class A apartment in a market with little to no new supply coming online, there's going to be a lot less of these risks of poor performance. A lot of Greg Willett's follow-up commentary about the risks of the Class A sector is follows from this new supply coming yeah. online, whether they're kind of leasing up and giving concessions that yeah. might make it might make your own property less attractive or whatever, but that's kind of where he finds it. And it's interesting, all the experts here, so Greg Willett talks about property types. The next expert we have is Jay Parsons, who talks about, actually talks about markets and submarkets, and I'll get into Jay, Mar- Jay Parsons here right Now, then. (laughs) Like Willett, Parsons sees Class B as a promising asset class, but most specifically, suburban Class B. Parsons also sees some challenges for the Class A properties, just like Greg Willett. Specifically, though, he thinks the downtown is the one where things might get the shakiest. Uh, I'll be interested to see how the city and suburb trends play out because we're not going back to the central business district just yet, but we are going back. There is a trend there. And like, I'm wondering how much is remote work going to stick around. And another trend that these this is a broader trend for throughout the nation is millennials entering the generation where they kind of want to live in a home and start a family rather than live in an apartment. You know,
0: that's what I was going to ask, Matt, is how much is it people got scared during COVID, Mm love downtown, but then they're going to come back because there's stuff to do downtown. Or is it a really a longer trend of, hey, we're there's a big demographic group of millennials who are just moving out to the suburbs for more space permanently. They're not moving back to the city in the next few years. You have the Gen Z population that yeah. is moving into the urban cores, but a smaller demographic group than the millennials yeah. that they are replacing. So on one hand, we're seeing recoveries of the downtown. Certainly aren't the complete ghost towns like they were during 2020, but are we going to see that growth especially when it's lopsided with the fact that so many developers were so bullish on the urban core. The whole story and the theme – of the downtown urban core and mixed Mm -hmm. use was really driven by the growth of the millennial generation that we're a part of. Coming out of the great financial crisis, finally somehow able to get a job, and then wanting to live in more of an urban environment to have that kind of life experience. Had that life experience, and some people are going to stay, but a lot, some by choice, some by necessity, need to move out to the suburbs. And so, yeah, the downtowns are going to come back but is it going to be the same? And are we just going to see a glut of new apartments over the next couple of years? As developers were just, I think, playing from an old playbook. It wasn't old in 2012, but that they were kind of going over the same strategy, that millennial urban core CBD strategy that I think may have kind of moved away, kind of, while they weren't watching out to the suburbs. Mm -hmm.
1: I think that demographic shift is a little bit more of a powerful trend than remote working. It's gonna come and go. It is gonna have an incredible effect on working culture. But when we're talking about getting an apartment and living somewhere, I'd like to think that people, it's that stage of life rather than what working conditions. Because people are coming to the office, whether it's two days a week or three days a week, it probably, the interests that bring you down to the downtown versus the suburbs are going to stay there, whether you're working five days a week or four days a week. Yeah,
0: yeah. I think it's more of what type of lifestyle are you looking for rather Mm -hmm. than just your commute time. I mean, commute time can be a part of it. I think where you're going, and I agree, is that I think the work from home Effects are going to be much more on the margins compared to a much larger trend of just millennials changing their behavior.
1: Yeah. Having kids, maybe they want a yard with a dog, and like you said last week, maybe this is if home buying attitudes really have changed fundamentally. Maybe this is this is going to be a boon for the rental of single family homes.
0: That was just, that, exactly my thought as well. I yeah. think the BTR build to rent concept is picking up more and more steam, and I think it makes just a ton of for all of those reasons. Yeah, it's still a relatively new asset class, and so there's still some questions about out there of what do they trade for, how do you manage them. If Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's what a lot of smart and savvy investors are looking at. I mean, we're certainly looking at a handful of opportunities.
1: I mean, you can't make it. It's almost like you, you can't put more pressure on millennials to hate home buying. They were hit so hard in 2008 yeah. and they almost quite recovered. And then they were hit again with a huge, either huge mortgage or huge home prices, mm-hmm. kind of both. Yeah. Now it's like, where do they go? Yeah. When are they just going to say, listen, this is a world that I don't need to participate in. I don't need to get this mortgage. I can just rent.
0: And maybe that's not a bad idea.
1: Yeah. You
0: yeah. Know? So yeah, I think that's going to continue and continue to happen.
1: The next expert comes from Yardi Matrix and it, they have their prediction, which is a 3.1% rent growth prediction is the same as Greg Willett's but Willett's number was his best case scenario so maybe Greg Willett maybe he was maybe a realistic figures 2.5% rent growth, but that's putting words in his mouth. Yeah. We did cover the Yardy matrix. Do you think, sorry, I'm not interrupting you, Matt, yeah. I think
0: that they were just like 3% because that's like the average over time.
1: There's there. And like, yes. I'm just curious
0: if it, well, I, I wonder how much like actual like data went into coming up with these numbers and how much went. Yeah. It was like, it's going to be around probably 3% and yardies is what, 3.1 to 3.5. So they're not like round numbers, but- there's nothing preventing someone from adding a decimal. Just yeah, it three point one like, does seem yes, yes, exactly. It's, like it's three, three point one. <laughs> but also, it's like you know what when I think of this is. Or the, how I'm thinking about it is we're probably not going to, it's not like we're going to see 3% every month or annualized 3% every month, yeah. 3 divided by 12. But so what is the first half okay. of the year going to look like yes. versus the second half?
1: So okay, Greg go. Willett talked about asset types. Yeah. Jay Parsons talked about markets and submarkets, or basically submarkets. And now Yardy Matrix is actually talking about timing. Yeah. So you've got place, time, and type. It's a nice little, I don't know if they plan on this in Globe Street, but here is the timing that Yardy Matrix says. They expect lower growth through the spring that picks up in the summer of this year, but then kind of in late Q3 or Q4, they expect a mild recession to dampen rent growth, but not enough to wipe out all of the growth gains from the first part of the year. So it's a little bit of a roller coaster this year when it comes to rent growth. I think we're still reacting to the huge growth that we saw. We're still in this moderating cycle and I'd like to see us claw our way out of it sooner rather than later.
0: the, the Yardi matrix is maybe not their point, but you know, that that assumption of a recession, that I mean, that's the big wild card. Yeah. Uh, if for, I mean, we went from several weeks ago to, or a month ago, recession was an absolute certainty. And like yeah. all the metrics with the probability at 99.9%, and then the last week or so, it's been, well, maybe that's not the case. Maybe we can engineer a soft landing. Maybe it's not going to be that bad it's much more up in the air. Yeah. And because people are looking around and seeing we're going through some kind of economic period, whatever we want to call it. If we're going to actually have a true recession that includes like losing jobs and much higher unemployment rate, that's going to feel different than it is right now. Because while things are a little uncertain, scary, and certainly some people are losing their jobs, especially in the tech sector, we're not seeing complete wide-scale layoffs. And we still have incredibly low unemployment Mm. rates. I think it's tempering down some of the absolute fear from the majority of just the general population yeah who you know well like things are uncertain and it's interesting because consumer confidence is way down in the toilet everyone's like yeah there's going to be a recession but yeah. then you look at like spending like like people are still spending money yeah yeah so it's like yeah we're all worried about it but our pocketbooks are doing something a little bit Different, yeah, and, yeah. and it's how it's hard to get into that recession when people are still spending money, and you yeah. can just see Jay Powell out, up there being like, "No, we need you to stop spending money <laughs> so we can have a technical yeah. uh,
1: contraction in the it's economy." It's not enough just to feel bad. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I mean, but that's what the Federal Reserve is mostly using psychology right yeah. now to try to get things to just tamper down. So it's just you know. relatively lower growth and they can normalize things. But the economy kind of has a mind of its own.
1: Yeah. And I wonder how inflation typically behaves in the winter months. But last, I mean, we covered last week, it was the CPI showed negative price growth, not even slower price growth, but like negative price growth. Yeah, And we're going to see the effects of falling house prices in the CPI too. I mean, it's going to take a few months to show up, but we've got that to kind of look forward to. Well, that and uh, rents falling too, <coughs> yeah, eventually, yeah. if we don't exactly. Not go over so, this so falling, f- falling shelter prices basically are going to act as a. It's going to be great news for inflation. So, I wonder how much. The Fed wants to continue, kind of follow through, and, not, it, and seem like they're serious, but it doesn't seem like we're scratching the surface of this huge inflation force that's going to push up against it. Yeah. We, yeah.
0: yeah. Well, I think it, it, my thought's exact mm-hmm. as if we kind of know that we're going to see decline in shelter costs and CPI in the coming months. Yeah. So we know that's going to happen. So it, like to your point, what are the other forces, the other inflationary forces that will really bump inflation up- Yeah. Because- we we just had a negative month of CPI and inflation. So not that, I mean, China is opening up so that could be a driver potentially in the global economy. I don't know if it's going to push U.S. inflation up that much but um, I think it's, if that, anything that's more of a path to normalization. Yeah. Then also just on the very global macro front. I mean, there was just a report out this week that China, not to get too far away from U.S. From China, but China actually experienced population decline. Yeah, um, saw that. it's, That's very deflationary from one of like the world's yep. largest growing economies. I think India maybe has now surpassed them in total population, but that population decline, lack of growth is very deflationary. So, and we talked about this last week, it's those forces of the inflationary forces combating the deflationary forces and there are still some inflationary forces that are longstanding, like the onshoring or the nearshoring. But yeah, I think there's a good case for real not high levels of inflation over the next couple of years, and more just more moderate,
1: maybe. Yeah. Now it could be the case that this is what I, what else I've heard is that we're entering kind of a new paradigm, whereas in the past. 20 years it's just been low inflation but it hasn't really been a huge problem especially after the post 2008 but now we may be a situation where instead of fighting like in this low stagnation we're overactive and there's too much inflation and that's what we're fighting against and that's what we're kind of trying to cure I don't it's going to take a real big shift in the collective psyche of everyone. I don't know, maybe the pandemic reset that, but the prevailing thought that we're still in a recession, I think part of it is that we were programmed since 2008 to think of this economy as a bad one. And it's like just so easy to fall in that mindset again. It's like, oh. Here it is. It lasted so long, you didn't even like. kind of realize we were... It's so true that conditioning that the great financial crisis really did to, I
0: think, a lot of people, especially, I think, folks our age yeah. that really were coming of age or whatever you want to call it during that time period of, like, the economy always sucks, it seems like, and stock market's always crashing. But when reality, that, that's, like, the opposite is true. That yeah. On average, like, the stock market goes on average. The economy grows over time. But you know, people are very quick to, say, recession... Doom yeah. and gloom. And I, I think there's a difference between that, just defaulting to crisis. There's a difference between that and taking a conservative approach or being cautious. Yeah. Yes. I think that there's two different things.
1: And kind of to return back to my comments yeah. then about the headline of the article yeah, it may seem like falling rents. Or recession or doom and gloom is the only possibility, but none of the multifamily experts here are saying that rents will fall at all. And in each one, there's going to be brighter spots than others. Yep. That seems a whole lot like normal to me. There's some good, some bad. That's life. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Look, it's not going to be an easy, as easy as finding the asset type that Greg Wilt likes, the submarket that Jay Parsons likes, and the best timing from the Yardy Matrix report. That's not. It's not like that. You can't just plug it in. But then again, like these are not all horrible expectations this could be as close to historical norms as we get and that just means that you can't predict the future perfectly that there's going to be some risk but then there's also going to be a way to plan around it yeah
0: it's like a, I would say, similar year that we've seen in the past. They would say, yeah, we're going to have around 3% rent growth, but some markets got more, some markets got less, and it comes much more to how you're going to operate the property. And we're talking about inflation, but it also relates to financing and interest rates and the last decade of just operating off of essentially cheap and free money in that era, at least coming to a pause, if not coming to an end of, again, I don't think we're going to see like much higher rates and probably lower rates, and I think we'll probably continue a, wa- a slow walk back down to much lower rates over time. But you know, I don't think we can assume the Fed funds rate is going to be zero in the near future. but yeah. it's going to be elevated. But maybe sticking it hanging out or between four and five is right within like the historic norms. Yeah, so yeah. It's again, it's really kind of coming back to more normalcy than anything.
1: Yeah, it is crazy how and a lot of these numbers and in some of the reports that were that came across this week, they talk about depending on where you're setting your setting your numbers, what's history and what's just like an unusual moment in history yeah, changes exomaly, a
0: lot. Yeah, that's true. All right, Matt, let's move on because we've got some other really good, interesting pieces. Yeah. The next one, which I think dovetails really well, and I think it talks about a lot of the underlying forces of rent growth, what we're talking about in demand, is this piece from the Joint Harvard Joint Center for Housing Studies.
1: Yeah, this was a really nice one, and I was really glad to see it. It's an important one because it deals with a metric that sits pretty close to the heart of housing demand, which is household formation, or as they are measuring it here, household growth, which is the number of new households that form each year in the United States. States. Maybe it comes from people moving out of their parents' home, maybe a new family immigrants into the country, or maybe a struggling grunge band finally gets a record deal and they're able to each get their own place. I think
0: that's what most of
1: it is from. Yeah, they're sharing apartments and now they got they signed a sub pop and they finally successful. That's just an example. But but more seriously, household formation is particularly relevant now because there was an unusually high increase during the past few years. Household formation really outpaced expectations in the past few years. So if we've had these last two, three years where it was really high, does that mean that we're going to have a few years of very low household formation going forward? That's one of the questions that it kind of poses. And figuring out the reasons behind this increase in household formation is going to be key to determining the strength of housing demand in the years to come. That's kind of what this report sets yeah. out to do. To get into specifics, which I thought was kind of funny, and I the, in 2018, this The same outfit, the Harvard Joint Center for Housing Studies predicted that average household growth in the next 10 years, so from 2018 to 2028, they predicted the average household growth would be 1.2 million each year on average. They were not right. No. Even the 2017 to 2019 pre-pandemic average ended up around 1.4 million annual growth. And the numbers for 2019 to 2021, way above the 1.2 million prediction from about... Two to two point three million household growth is what was recorded. I mean, so that's like almost double. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, that's for that, sure. That's a
0: big, that's a big miss. Yeah. So I guess begs the question. I guess why should we go off of their predictions well, going I forward, think, All, other than they're one of the most respected groups that studies this type? I think. Of stuff. Well, I think it's hard it, to predict what everyone's going to do. You
1: know I what? I like this report because it's like. We made this mess and we're going to clean up after ourselves. Yeah, and so you know who better to figure out why? And maybe they'll put their asterisks there. And but uh, but I like that at least that, that they're coming forward. And that's yeah. why I like. I said this a couple of weeks ago. I like it when people go on the record and make these rent growth because what are the stakes?
0: And just for context, reading a piece and looking over a piece from Harvard, the Joint mm-hmm. Center for Housing Studies versus some of our other sources, which are you, we have to go. You know, what are the motivations? Even yeah. if like they're not, they don't. They try to take those biases out, but so many. Of these other sources for real estate information are coming from organizations that are trying to sell something, often yeah. trying to sell real estate, mm-hmm. to buy and invest into real estate. So they have a motivation and a goal of yeah. saying, hey, it's a great time to invest. Where Harvard, Joint Center for Housing Studies, they don't have really a dog in the fight, yeah. other than like I think they like to do some good academic work.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I think that's definitely kind of clarifies things. And also, I'd like to think that Harvard has some resources to figure out. It's got <laughs> to a figure good things out. I don't know. <laughs> they got strike one and let's see how they do now. Yeah. <laughs> so, they did look at why. Why did household formation surge ahead of these expectations? It's not a huge surprise that millennials were the age group with the largest growth in household formation. So, part of finding out that why has to do with that, that specific generation. And so, here come the first two reasons behind the increased household formation, and I'm kind of grouping them together as one. They say economic factors like 4.9% wage growth in 2021 and an unemployment rate that dropped from 6.7 to 3.9 in 2021 okay. yeah. made an environment that was that helped foster and cultivate this greater household form formation. Now another one between 20 2016 and 2021 the amount of household growth in the 25 to 34 cohort and the 35 to 44 cohort was about double what it was in previ- in the previous 5 years. So a lot of this household formation they're kind of talking about that millennial group and it says such a pickup in growth in this age group cannot be explained by growth in the underlying population alone and suggests older millennials were now forming the households that had been delayed earlier in the decade. And so that's kind of reason number two, years of- So we going back to
0: the great financial crisis yeah. and can't stay
1: in our parents' house yeah, and yeah. know, trying to figure things out. So they call it years of pent-up demand for new households, which was unlocked- Again, by the favorable wage and employment situation. I do think so. And this is where I will kind of lightly criticize as much as I can. Yeah. <laughs> the pent up demand factor is interesting, but I wonder like when they were making this 2018 prediction that underestimated household growth, how much were they aware of this pent up demand? Because they're citing it as this powerful driver in their new analysis. Mm-hmm. What were they thinking about it in 2018?
0: Yeah. The old, yeah. The now they're like, taking it into account and, and essentially yeah. saying we've kind of maybe carried some of that. We, we carried forward the demand, I guess, from that was pent up. We were some demand from the future as well. Yeah,
1: I think that's definitely some the big implication of this entire report, for sure. So we've got those two.
0: But re- it seems like that is the area where they may have missed, they've like kind of missed of, I mean, but how do you analyze yeah. you know, pent-up, Demand. I guess you could look at the population that does has not formed a household, and you know what the difference is, and the probabilities over time of when they what they should and that gap. But it's still yeah. that's when those decisions are actually made. Is I mean that's hard to predict.
1: Yeah, and again, they're saying it maybe this pent up demand would have been locked away forever if it weren't for the economic conditions being right for yeah. this change in household formation. So it, ultimately, it does kind of precipitate to the economic conditions. So we've got the economic de- conditions that years of pent up demand those are those are the first two reasons and then reason 3 is increased headship rates. This is actually increased household formation that is not due to population growth, but due to increases in heads of households. So these are situations like that grunge band I mentioned earlier. People who were previously roommates now are renting or buying their own respective homes. So roommates are breaking up, And they're all getting their own places. Yeah. And maybe it's an influencer house where they decide that this is a horrible environment. We're gonna all live separately.
0: (laughs) But that's definitely now, yeah. That's a little more relevant. Now are they moving back in with their parents or that's true, yeah. Yeah. And then, like, I guess like if like a couple got divorced, they go from one household to two households.
1: And maybe all those influencers are accountants now. That's a lot more I'd love love that for them.
0: They are saying they are accountants. (laughs) That's what they're telling their parents.
1: All right. Oh, yeah, that's true. (laughs) But yeah, the fact that so much of the increase in household formation came from increased headship rates suggests, as they write, that the current surge in household growth is temporary because we're reaching the foreseeable peak of headship rate right now. Like I said, all those roommates, they've already gone and gotten their own places. Maybe there's not enough roommate situations to break up and increase the heads of household rate. Now, given that the other driver of household formation, population growth, is very low compared to historical averages, then as the JCHS argues, we could be seeing lower housing demand such that, as they say, the impact on markets could be significant. I'm going to offer another, again, another gentle redirection that may steer markets away from such a significant impact. The report says that we have no more room for increased headship rates, that all of the roommates, they're all gone. But I think that there's actually still some room left. JCHA says we've recovered a great deal from the post-2008 housing slump, and headship rates now... So these roommate situations were about where we were in 2011. But in 2006, which is pre-housing crisis, the headship rates actually looked better Mm -hmm. than 2011. So if we set 2006 as a peak instead of 2011, we're a little bit halfway past the point of this kind of roommates getting their own places. So we've got some room to go. We have some room for housing demand to go up. We're not really at the peak of anything right now. There and are the store's not over.
0: There's still more roommates yeah. living together, people still living in the basement. Yeah, yeah exactly. It, 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 which, uh, yeah, Collectively, I, yeah. I, that's yeah, Right, right.
1: <laughs> and then they say the other idea is population growth, and that's what's driving it. But this report specifically really covers that idea of headship rates, of household formations due to people getting a better job and realizing, like, I can support myself now. I can live in live in my own place. And I think that a lot of this depends on economic conditions. If things get bad, and we've said this before, if things get bad, they're going right back into the roommate situation.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: So I still think based on what we have discussed, the story is definitely not written. It We may see in five, 10 years, the effects of this all play out. Maybe we squeeze everything perfectly, but it's, we're not going to crash Immediately.
0: So, I mean, so what I'm, my takeaway from this is that I think it, there's reason to be cautious of where household formation is going in housing demand over the next couple of years or so. Mm-hmm. But with an asterisk next to it saying there may be – there's a definite chance of kind of an upside surprise, and they, they've kind of missed on some of these predictions and been overly conservative in the yeah, past. Yeah, that's actually a really good point. Yeah. That could be the case. I don't think we don't. You would want to bank on that. You don't want to bank on them being wrong. So yeah. Like, like, here's the data, and sure, yeah, that could happen. But I don't think that the story is, like written in stones. Mm. It never is.
1: Yeah, yeah. And like, I don't want to bet against Harvard. They're usually right. I don't know. I don't know. They, 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 <laughs> I, when I was saying they they this, so I was going like, off that reputation. I'm going to give long. a gentle redirection. I'm not going to tell them that they're the Harvard elite or anything, but. Maybe.
0: (laughs) I mean, they kind of, yeah. Okay. Well, well, Harvard will see if they can get their stuff together. Yeah. uh, They put out great stuff in the Joint Center
1: for Health. I was really pleased. This was a really interesting, and it definitely is well worth reading for sure.
0: Take a look at it. You subscribe to The Great Report, com slash newsletter. You can get all the stuff sent to your inbox. Why don't you drop a like and subscribe while you're here? You got this far through the video. We appreciate it. And why not a comment?
1: Yeah, I know. Yeah.
0: Defend Harvard. Yeah. It'd be like, hey, it's a great Institution and school. All right.
1: Anything else from the? Uh, no, I think that really does study? cover it. And especially the implications is it, it, watch household formation. Jay Parsons himself has yeah. said it. Yeah. Watch that. Yeah. That's really at the heart of housing demand.
0: Yep. Yep. Job growth, unemployment rate, and that. The household yep. formation is kind of bottom line. Okay, so we got a little, a little report from Apartment List. As the rental market cools, these cities are cheaper today than they were a year ago.
1: Yeah, this is a quick report. It has a nice map, and I always like these little breakdowns. They give a lot of the same data that they have in their regular monthly reports, but presenting it differently really lets you see yeah. kind of how the relative performance of everything was, especially last year when things were so crazy. So they list 22 markets that have had cooling rents. Of the top 100 that they cover in apartment list, 22 had negative rent growth in the past year. They have a list of all these 22, but a lot of them are submarkets that could be lumped into a single MSA. So that's what I'm going to do. So that cuts it down by half into well into a list of 11, a lot more manageable.
0: Like this area over here, basically Phoenix, but it, it's got like 10 circles around it.
1: Exactly. For example, Scottsdale, Arizona tops that list with negative 6.9 rent growth year over year, but I'm going to lump that in with Phoenix, which has a negative 0.5. Yeah, I I mean, it's fine. Yeah, exactly. So this is, again, a rough list because I've done these. I've done this like consolidation. But anyways, it's still it's still interesting. So the top of the list is Las Vegas with negative 4.6 rent growth. And then we've got Oakland, which you could lump with San Francisco. But like that's where I draw the line. It's distinct to me. (laughs)
0: I think that's reasonable. Okay. I mean, you could say the Bay Area. But yeah, I yeah. think, yeah, as we are talking about earlier, sub markets are important. But if like we're going to make a national list of markets, it's
1: yeah, yeah it's probably more helpful. To so here's Cleveland's coming up again. It's got negative 2.7 rent growth. Now, this Cleveland is one of only three Midwestern markets on the list. And here's a fact that kind of frustrates and fascinates me to no end. Redfin has Cleveland, Ohio as the fourth largest market for rent growth at a positive 14.6%. Yeah, over the same period. I don't get it. But apartment list, negative.
0: That, again, it reiterates how important it is to look at different sources yeah. and certainly not just go off the first report or percentage that you see. Yeah. And that's why you can subscribe to the Gray Report, and we're aggregating all this data, providing averages.
1: And, and as we'll see in, next, in the next piece of research that we'll cover here, I think that maybe the reason why those numbers are different is some of them are pulling from downtown, and some of them are pulling for the suburbs.
0: Yeah, but well, and I think that's a good point because I mean, we've talked about the disparity between the urban core and the suburbs. And if you're taking city data versus MSA data, that's going to include the suburbs. It's going to be drastically different because you're either just looking at the areas yeah. that are moderate to negative rent growth, and you're leaving out the yeah. the blockbuster rent growth areas in a given market. Which I'm sure yeah. that's what happened in Cleveland. Is yeah, I like. We're not a, in, a Cleveland investor. It's not on our list. It's got negative population growth, and but the sub but there's some suburbs outside oh, yeah. of Cleveland that are totally fine, good markets to invest in. And it's not like my area of expertise, but like I'm sure there's a good rent growth out there in the suburbs.
1: They have Detroit is on this list of Same reducing story, rents. Yeah. Is like there's some really nice suburbs, suburbs in in Detroit, and there it's a huge area. These are yeah yeah so. They're not going away yeah. <laughs> either. And so I'm not going to read this whole list of 11, but there is a nice map that we kind of looked at a little bit that accompanies the list. And as often the case with good visualizations, you get a better sense of where these markets are than when you do when it's broken down into a list of one by one cities. I already noted the three Midwestern markets, but the map shows pretty clearly that for the Southeast, except for Atlanta and also Virginia Beach, the Southeast is doing pretty well. Like we said last week, not every single Sunbelt hotspot is going to have declining apartment rent growth. But that being said, a lot of Sunbelt markets showing positive rent growth are not doing quite as well as in other regions. So you can compare the 2.1% rent growth of Tampa to the 5.6% in Louisville, or the 2.8% in Austin to the 5.6% in Cincinnati, or the 87 in Miami to all right, well, that was a joke because Miami's doing well. <laughs> yeah. There are plenty of markets again that are like s- staying hot, but as a region, it's no longer the easy leader standing tall above the rest. The Sun Belt is. It is competitive with and among the other regions of America, and yeah. it's just a. a it's a more of a case by case basis now. And like we said last week, Miami has that kind of job market, and there is some made just a secret sauce that that is pulling people and is keeping things very elevated. Miami,
0: partying the city where the heat is on, all night on the beach to the break of dawn. I mean, there's a lot of draws. He said it back. He said it best. Big Willie style. I mean, it kind of (laughs) cemented Miami as a place to be. That's true. At the time.
1: Yeah, maybe that is. And I missed it.
0: Yeah. And I guess Pitbull, like took the, I don't know, I don't follow, but the... stuff going on. Miami was a great place. I love hanging out in Miami.
1: Yeah. And I think it was that market. And then there's other ones that are in the South and that are doing really well too. So it's not just one city Like Surprisingly enough, it's one of these things where you kind of have to do your homework. It's no longer, you can't just aim for that region anymore and find success wherever you go.
0: No. And that's where I think investors in the Sun Belt just have to be just careful and specific because in the past, you could have just probably picked any market in the Sunbelt, and maybe we're entering an area where that's not necessarily the case. Mm -hmm. Not every Sunbelt market acts the same way, and you also need to take into account the supply coming online in those markets relative to other markets and demand. And because the idea, the reason why you'd go to the Sunbelt is for the growth and the migration population trends there, which are longstanding, going to keep going for a while. That's going to lead to a lot of rent growth and so much demand. But, you know, if you build more apartments and people are moving in, it doesn't move rents. Yeah. So that's where like in the Midwest where we have in migration, but not as much, but to a level where we're building some apartments, but not too many apartments, we're actually getting in many cases, better rent growth than a lot of those Sunbelt markets that I think the majority of capital and the kind of this consensus trade and kind of your, I think your average trade has been going into where I think that we went against the grain a little bit, not completely intentionally because it's also just like where we live and what we know best. But I mean, again, Indianapolis we're cranking if I didn't hit the hit this button, we're cranking at eight point four percent, which is essential. I mean Miami they have at eight point seven. But I mean other markets in the Midwest, Columbus five point nine, Fort Wayne, three point nine, Lexington, Kentucky, eight, Louisville, five point six. I mean, these are very similar numbers than a lot of in much in higher than many. I mean, higher yeah. than Houston, higher than Austin higher than San Antonio, higher than Jacksonville, Florida, St. Petersburg, Florida, Tampa, Florida, Orlando, Florida, Char- at least Indianapolis is higher than Charlotte. Charlotte's doing well. Williams, Winston-Salem, Greensboro. I mean, I, the list goes on and on. Yeah. Where these are all markets where the story was, well, just, I'm going to follow just the population growth. Yeah. But again, it's all relative to what the supply is.
1: Yeah. It's this no market. longer kind of a categorical thing. And I do think, yeah, it's because of that clamor and that rush to uh, to fill those apartments up. Yeah. Fill those markets up with apartments. Yeah.
0: Yep. Yep. Got to lower the rents, keep them, good. If you want to fill them up, yeah. want to get them leased up. Yeah. Got to get it stabilized. So you can refinance it or you can sell it. Otherwise, yeah. you're gonna sit on it. So that bridge loan with that raising rising interest rate.
1: Yeah, yeah. It, that's a cause and effect if, if I've ever seen one.
0: <laughs> yeah. All right, Matt. We got one more. Any anything else on the apartment list? I think there were
1: the well, pretty well
0: awesome. Let's move on to real page. Apartment occupancy lags and urban courts. Now, we were just talking about this.
1: Yes. Um, You actually said one of these things about supply that like, that's one of the reasons that we land on at the end of this article. So it was really nice. Jay Parsons didn't write this article, but he's a kind of leader that I think he is at RealPage. I think he appreciates and uses the insights gathered from the entire team and all those things he said about suburban strength and Earlier in the Gray report, yeah. well, here we have a nice write-up from Julia Bunch on the Real Page research team that shows what this looks like in more detail. Thanks, Julia. Yeah. So I li- I really like this report. I read there was another report that I didn't use that I was like they almost bait and switched me, and I thought they were going to have this really great this really great conclusion, but the argument went completely in the other direction. Yeah. What I love, the yes, piece? there yeah, was a okay. Moody's article that was like fourteen hundred words, and it started one way and, and then it was just like so unsatisfying they did not answer the question that i wanted them to answer but julia bunch in a scant 339 words does better than that. That article is like five times bigger. The context of Julia Bunch's article is that there is a difference between urban's not doing well, occupancy-wise, doing a little bit worse than suburban. There's actually an 80% basis point difference now between suburbs and the urban core. 80 basis points. And that kind of tracks closely, actually, with a pre-pandemic average. It used to be hugely different there used to be huge a lot bigger vacancies in the urban core versus the suburbs but now We're about even with historical averages. So the question that I'm kind of wondering as I read the report, is this difference in vacancy the same throughout the country? Or, I mean, do all cities have downtown apartments with higher vacancy? When you know it, she Julia Bunch anticipated that question. She has a list of markets with the biggest difference. I won't go through the whole list, but suffice to say, Sacramento is at the top with 95% suburb occupancy compared to 91.5% downtown. And the other markets listed here tick down at regular intervals between this 350 basis point in difference and the 150 basis point difference of the last market on this list, which is Baltimore. Cleveland is number two on this list. So maybe... Redfin is recording suburban rents and apartment list is looking downtown. That's that's the X factor. I don't know. This is all supposition. Yeah. But.
0: Well, I think we've noticed that I think Redfin and sometimes Zillow, even though sometimes their methodology says they're taken from large apartment buildings, it sometimes yeah. it seems like the data is coming more from single family homes, single family rentals than yeah. large apartment buildings, which would kind of make. Sense from Redfin's point of view.
1: Yeah, and I wonder too. Houses out in the suburbs. Well, yeah, and like I also wonder too what their sample size is. If mm-hmm. you have five, then that's really easy to land in the majority of one region area, the the other. But if you have like five hundred, then it's going to be a little bit more even. And Redfin's national average, it's not like wildly out of out of whack. It's just these individual markets. There's so much variation between every single source. Sometimes, yeah. A lot of times, the ones that I like. We'll have the same group at the top, but there is, I'm still kind of coming to terms with, with the differences between, so that's why I think they're still so interesting. Again, why, and so, so we're looking at these, these markets, like your Baltimore's and your Sacramento's, where the downtown is doing a little bit worse than suburbs. And I'm asking myself, why do these markets have a bigger gap between the suburbs and downtown? Two trends, explains Julia Bunch, explain these, explain this effect, There is soft occupancy compared to the market average, and a recent construction surge, and that's what characterizes all the urban cores on this list. So it's just like what you said; these are these are places where a lot more apartments came online, and these downtowns with higher vacancy rates had just gotten new apartments, and also it's right when the pandemic. Led people away from the urban core, so they kind of got that. They still have that. Many, Where are you going? We just uh, delivered all yeah. these apartment units. They're great. Yeah, yeah. So that's they It kind of got left hanging in the back. I think that some of the construction probably was ongoing during the pandemic, but it's not like they're going to exactly stop. Yeah. But then another thing. So it's like all these times I'm asking these questions as I read, and Julie bunch is like, "Oh, here you go. Here's it's the just answer." The same headspace. You know? I love it. Whereas
0: yeah. you know, I'm not familiar with the author from the Moody's piece, yeah. but it's sometimes it's. Someone that's writing a piece that's not like in the multifamily industry. Sometimes the perspective is nice, but sometimes they can be distracted a little bit by some of the shiny objects and some of the stories that aren't as yeah. impactful. Like I think, like when they made a pivot instead of answering your questions, they made a pivot. <laughs> All to I wanted to know office had... <laughs> to multifamily conversions.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's I was like, why are you talking about that? That you're just digressing into something that because <laughs> that is like a trendy thing to talk about,
0: yeah. and it's it's a worthy thing to talk about. But if you talk to anybody that's doing it, done it, thinking about it, it's like, okay, yeah, some, somewhere. But it's not like every office
1: building is going to be turned into apartments because it just, like, it can't—it's, like, economically doesn't make sense. Yeah, it's not worth—it's not moving the market. And the forces that Julie Bunch is talking about are moving the market. This idea of new apartments coming online, right, when, you know—and where are they? It's like, that's worth knowing rather than, hey, look, in New York specifically, there are some office buildings that are being converted. Well, yeah, but— Whatever. Yeah. I was wondering though, what if, so generally, downtown's not doing as well as the suburbs. Are there any markets where the suburbs are actually doing worse mm-hmm. than downtown? And We got an answer. Actually, there are a handful of markets, and they're all home to a major university and subsequent student population. Mm, Okay, Uh, that makes sense. Yeah, a couple weeks ago, we talked about Carl Whitaker's optimism for student housing, and we mentioned the longer-term pressures that the student housing sector might face from declining enrollment. As a little bit of a follow-up, Carl Whitaker did explain this Long-term pressure in a recent LinkedIn post, basically, kind of agreeing with us, I think, saying that things are looking great in the short term, but longer term, there is slowing eighteen to twenty-four year old population growth there, and also the rise of education, the perceived value of a degree, within the context of the sharply rising costs, doesn't favor rapid enrollment expansion. There are two stories, and I do think I was very much convinced of this of the short-term story that Carl Whitaker has that Carl Whitaker uses to explain. And, and kind of justify that, yeah, there's some really great deals to be found in some of these student houses.
0: Yeah. The, the, the markets that have like the university component to it that are, they have to be kind of small enough, like not very small, because then the university is like the only sole driver yeah. in the market. Yeah. But in these markets where the university has a noticeable impact on the market, mm-hmm. um, they have different dynamics that can be really interesting for multifamily investors. Matt, should I comment on Carl Whitaker's? <laughs> <LinkedIn>? <laughs> yeah, let's, let's let's comment. Love this. Yeah, We're going to make good. it easier. Oh, I have to not do it on actually have to do in the browser. We love this. Let's do it. Great. And uh, so you can hop on to Carl Whitaker's LinkedIn, say that, hey, we heard about you from the Gray Report, and then <laughs> like Matt's comment, yeah, yeah, yeah. he loves this. I'll bump it up. Because we do. And Carl Whitaker, who, he's going to be speaking at the National Multifamily Housing Council that takes place at the end of January, early February. Huge meeting. It's where all the big players are going to be. So he's making time out of his busy schedule for that, but he's also making some time to hop on the Gray Report. What, is it end of this week? Monday? <laughs> next, next week. Next yeah. week. Yeah. So
1: I'm that's looking really, forward to it.
0: That, yeah, it's really exciting because Carl and his colleague Jay Parsons at Real Page they put out all kinds of interesting content that we cover all the yeah. time here on the Gray Report because it's really high quality analysis. It's not just, hey, we took a survey or study, we've got some data and yeah. we're sort of gonna explain the data. It's actual analysis, yeah. uh, which we really appreciate and fuels a lot of what we do and helps educate us, help, educates you, and uh, we appreciate what they yeah. do. So, very excited to have Carl on the show next week. Matt, that's all for the reports yeah. for the rapport. Now, again, The newsletter's got way more than this. com slash newsletter. And if you're saying, okay, I like these guys. I'd like to partner with them. That is an option. If you're interested, if you're an accredited investor and you'd like to partner with Gray Capital, we've got a couple of different opportunities. And we have a fund that is invested in currently four. It's going to be between probably five and seven properties at the end of the day, all cash-flowing Midwestern assets. But we also have an opportunity to go directly into one of those deals. We've, rate, we've lowered our investment minimum. We actually had a million-dollar minimum to go directly into a deal. We've lowered that down to $250,000. Still a ton of money, but we've had a lot of demand from investors saying, hey, I want to write that to kind of 250 to $500,000 check. If that's something that's interesting to you, get in touch with us. We'd love to have the conversation. Spots are going pretty quick, but it's an exciting deal in a college town in Bloomington, Indiana, but it's market rate, not student housing. Again, accredited investors only, but it's really, really exciting. I mean, we've invested in over 10,000 units here at Great Capital since we've started, and we see a lot of opportunities. At the same time, we're pretty cautious on the market. There's a lot of opportunities that we've passed on a lot recently, and especially last year. So we set some pretty stringent criteria. If you'd like to learn more about us, maybe you're like, hey, I'm not ready to invest yet. I just met you guys. I just clicked on your thumbnail on YouTube. <laughs> I'm not wiring you money. Totally get it. Get in touch with us. We'll send you like our reports or our properties, give you more information, schedule a call, learn more about the team. Yeah, and see if it's a good fit. Sometimes it's not a good fit, but uh, we love talking to cool people. So just get in touch with us. And uh, if you're like, hey, look, I am not doing that? Well, then leave a comment. Let us know. We'd love to hear that too. All right. Thank you for watching the Gray Report, Matt. Great set of reports. This is awesome. Catch you next week on the Gray Report.